All right, we are now continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed, and in this week, uh, I want to, to start off by asking you to do me a favor. Who can help me with a definition? Does someone know what the word paradox is? What do I mean by the word paradox? Anyone have a clue or an idea what you can uh, offer up? Paradox, what, what is a paradox? All right, I'll help you. <laughs> a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be untrue. Now that's a mouthful, right? So I'm going to give you, just for fun, in preparation for what we're going to talk about today, I decided to do a search of some of the greatest paradoxes of all time. Here's a little bit of what I found. How many of you are familiar with the grandfather paradox? You've heard about this one, the grandfather paradox? This, this is a little bit out there, but it has to do with the concept of time travel, okay? Anyone here have a time machine, just out of curiosity? No, all right. Uh, so the idea is if you traveled back in time, you know you're not supposed to do anything that would disrupt the time-space continuum, right? You've all seen Back to the Future, what happens if you do that? Because what might happen? It, th this presents the main problem of time travel. If you go back and, let's say, prevent yourself from being born, like let's just say you, you, you take out your grandfather, right? How would you ever have been able to go back in time in the first place? See that? It's a paradox, all right? There, uh, there's one that's called the liar paradox. Are you ready for this one? This one's, this one's out there. Uh, this one will, will put your mind in a, in, a, in a pretzel, okay? It has a very simple premise. Here it is, ready? This is the paradox. This sentence is false. This sentence is false. See the problem? If the statement, this sentence is false, is true, then that means that the sentence is, in fact, false. But that would mean that the sentence is false. And if the sentence, this sentence is false, then that means it's true. But if it's true, then it's false. You see, you can, go, you can keep going around and around this, and, and it'll twist your mind into a, 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 a knot. Now, here's one more. This one's called the crocodile paradox. <laughs> and it's similar to the liar paradox, but it goes like this. Imagine a crocodile grabs a young child from a riverbank. The child's parent then asks the crocodile to return the child safely, but the crocodile replies that he will return the child only if the parent can correctly guess if he will safely return the child or not, okay? Now, if the parent correctly guesses that the crocodile will return the child safely, then there will be no problem. If the parent is wrong, then the crocodile will keep the child. The paradox then arises if the parent guesses that the crocodile will not return the child. If this happens and the crocodile returns, predict the parent's answer and the crocodile will be breaking his promise. Are you following me? You, you getting all this? Furthermore, if the crocodile does not return the child, then the parent will have correctly guessed the answer and the crocodile should then return the child safely. However, this scenario would then also result in the parent being wrong about the prediction. Therefore, there wouldn't be any justifiable solution for what the crocodile will do. You see, again, it's one of these things you can keep going around and around in, in, uh, in your head. Now, here's why I bring up the subject of, of paradox. As we continue our study in the Apostles' Creed, last week I told you that we'd be going through the Creed line by line, and in some cases, word by word. 
And last week we looked at the phrase, I believe. This week, I want to, I think I told you last week we'd gone to the Father, but I want to take the phrase a little bit further. I believe in God the Father Almighty. God the Father Almighty. And when you look at that phrase, there is an element of paradox to it. Can you identify the paradox? Let's look at it a little bit closer. For you, if I ask you, who is God, what is your answer? Who is God? I mean, there's all kinds of answers I'm sure you could share with me. Who is God? Give me one, anything. Creator. Who else? Who is God? God is the great I am. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, too. Who is God? The Ancient of Days. That's a good one. That's a deep one. Who else? The Alpha and Omega. Beginning and the end. He's eternal. Okay? Now, in the Shorter Catechism, there's a question there that says, what is God? Not who is God. What is God? And the idea behind the question is attempt to identify and put words around God's nature, some of which you've already said here. His characteristics, he's infinite, he's eternal, and unchangeable, goes the answer. These, again, are all things that you've said in your answers. But if we're trying to answer the, the question more specifically of who, who is God, well, we best look to the scriptures and see how God answers the questions. Here's one of my all-time favorites. Someone just said, the great I am, right? Who said that? Good one. All right, right from the get-go. Here we go. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, here's the setup. And, and with what's going on in this chapter, God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. You remember this account, right? And he's telling Moses, I, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Who are in Egypt. Uh, and, um, and, and, heard my, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Okay, let's look at chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Exodus 3, verse, verse 9 and following. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send to you Pharaoh that you, might bring, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God is basically telling Moses here, you've got to go into Pharaoh's chambers and you're going to tell them, you know, you know how you have all that free labor? You know how your entire economy is built upon the idea that you have this free labor force comprised entirely of the people of Israel, uh, those you have enslaved? Yeah, you're going to let them go, Okay. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Don't worry, Moses. Don't worry. Okay, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go before you. And when you're free, you'll serve me. And that'll be proof positive that I mean what I say. I will be your God and you'll be my people. Then Moses says in verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? What shall I say to them? What a great practical question. This is like whenever someone challenges you on something and you know, says, says who, right? Says who? This is what Moses is saying. He must be thinking, when I tell the Israelites... We're going to stand up to the most powerful person in the planet. They're going to think I've lost it. They're going to think I'm crazy. Basically, I'm supposed to go to God's people and tell them, God said we're supposed to go do this, right? Hey, you know, I always get a little skeptical when someone says that to me. God told me that, right? Because my immediate impulse, are you sure it was God? How do I know it was God? If you think talking about the same, how do you really know? 
Moses is asking God a really practical question here. When the people of, of, of God question me on, on this, what am I supposed to tell them? Who are you? You know, by what authority do I claim when I, when I tell them this, this radical thing that I'm about to ask them to do? Okay, again, sometimes this happens in our house. You know, we put restrictions on our kids. For instance, we tell them, you can't have unlimited computer time. If, <laughs> I'm convinced that if I just said, you know, you're free to use your time as you wish, all day and night they would spend on the computer. So we have to tell them, no, you can't. You only have this much time a day, depending on what day. You know, if it's a weekend, maybe they get a little bit more time. But when the time is up, the time is up, right? Well, one day when I said time is up, and then all of a sudden I, st I still see them, like, what are you doing? Your time is up. And all, all of a sudden, one of them just has to say something to the effect of, mom said, mom said, mom said it was okay. And I'm like, did you tell them like that? Because what happens is he said they, they checked out ahead of time and by mom's authority, they may give it additional time to, to spend on their computer, you know, because they say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm playing, I, I need 30 more minutes because I'm playing with my long lost friend. They try and make it a noble reason, you know. I'm telling them about Jesus on the, on the computer. <laughs> right? Mom said, okay, carry on then. Carry on. Their mom has the authority to establish the rules regarding their behavior and that. And that. So, so this is the kind of authority that Moses is looking for. When I tell the people of God that we're going to, what we're going to do, I need to go up I need to be able to tell them a, a position of unquestionable authority. So when I go to this, to them with this audacious plan, what in the world do I tell them? Who do I say that said it was okay? And God replies this question with verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. What does that mean? Why, why is this answer such a big deal? You know, what's packed in an, in an answer when asked, who are you, that says, I am who I am. I am who I am. God says his answer. You ever wonder about this? Because this, is, this, this word, I am who I am, it, it forms the, the, the sacred name of God, Yahweh, okay? And so why, why is this an answer to the question, who are you? I am who I am. Anyone have a guess? What, what, is, this, what, is, what is the Lord expressing when he says something to this effect? Yeah, Danny. There's nothing higher, there's nothing greater, there's nothing before, there's nothing after. It, it's a statement of, of eternality, right? That's great. He says, you know, normally, uh, it's not like I... Right? Or, or I used to be a, a director of discipleship, now I'm pastor of discipleship. All right? We, we, our titles change all the time. The way we reference ourselves, the way we talk about ourselves, they, they're, they're ever-evolving, right? The Lord, however, remains the same. He, he is never inconsistent. He is constant. So this is a statement of, of, of being constant. He is, as the Catechism tells us that I referred to earlier, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In other words, this is who I am. Yeah, did you have a question, Dean? Yeah, well, just in, like, even how the Bible starts, in the beginning, well, even before the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good argument there to when, when the Bible begins with, in the beginning, 
That's your first clue. This is something we've had a lot of discussions about. That in the first chapter, of De- we're going to go into this next week a little bit, maker of heaven and earth. When we read the first account or the first chapter of Genesis, are we getting an exhaustive history of how the of how of how uh, you know creation was established? Uh, well, there's a lot of room for discussion on that. But again, even the idea in the beginning. Okay, now you know we're talking about something a little bit different because again, to God, there is no beginning. He, he always was. He always is. He is eternal, right? God says his answer uh, in such a way that, that his constant end. And this is also something we're told. Look at this. This is from uh, Job 34, 14 to 15, okay? This is, you know, you know the book of Job. Uh, this is, it's an incredible, believed to be the oldest book in the Bible, by the way, Job. If he should set his heart to it and gather himself, his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Here's the thing. It's his prerogative to do what he wants to do. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm I'm the start. I'm I'm everything. Everything there is, everything that exists, exists because God holds it all together. That's what we mean by beginning and the end. I am the statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and his immediate presence. God, God's existence isn't contingent upon anyone or anything else. His plans are not dependent upon anyone or anything else. So in the book of Job, God, Job is asking God to, to explain himself a little bit. You know, he, he's saying the whole book, you know, everything that he's gone through, Rather than apologize, Job went through all the suffering, the physical suffering. He turned him over to, the, to, to let Satan uh, have his way with him. And what did God say? To him? Why am I going through all this? Why, why am I being put through this? And what does God basically say to him when he questions him? He says, "Get on your feet. let me not you, not you guys right now, but I, he's telling Job, get on your feet right now and listen." Job thirty-eight. Four to seven. Where were you, Job, at the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where, where were you, Job? And he continues to, ber- to berate him like this for a few more chapters. It goes on. In other words, God's saying to Job, I answer to no one. I, th- this is not the warm, fuzzy picture of God sometimes that we like to think about because we like to think about that, that, that God is always, oh, it's okay, it's all right, but not, that's not what he's saying here to Job. He's saying, who do you think you are, basically? All right, and there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. You know, I'm, I'm God Almighty, Job, so, so watch your tone. And Job responds with, I'm paraphrasing here, yeah, okay, I'm good, I'll be quiet. You see, God says, I, I alone can say I am. Just, I just am. I'm the self-existent creator and the sustainer of everything that exists. That's who sent you, Moses. That's who sent you. Any questions? So, so what is God saying here? In a sense, he's saying, I answer to no one. Don't question me. I hold and sustain the word on my fingertips. See, in that sense, I believe God, the Father, Almighty, is unapproachable. 
He's untouchable. So in one sense, the Apostles' Creed is telling us that, that God is that almighty, untouchable God. I am who I am. Okay? But on the other hand, the Apostles' Creed is also telling us he's not only God the Father Almighty, but he's also God the Father Almighty. This is where I'm going when I start off talking about paradox, because this, believe it or not, the title, God the Father Almighty, is a, is a, is a bit contradictory. They, they sit there together in, in a bit of a paradox, because on the one hand, you have God Almighty, unapproachable, untouchable, unquestionable, but then you also have the Father. Here, here's something you may not have realized before. Uh, when we refer to God as the Father, do you know why that's significant? Do you know why it's such a big deal to refer to God as the Father? You can go back to the Old Testament and scour the pages of the Old Testament, and you are going to seldom find God referred to from a title standpoint as Father. You'll see him referred to as God the Father in terms of he's the Father of Israel, and Israel is, is, is God's son. But in terms of the way you might be thinking of Father, okay, affection, nearness, you don't get that in, in the Old Testament. Now, why that's significant is, is listen, Jesus... In Jesus' day, the Jews there were, were reluctant to call the great I am their father, and even for doing so. Jesus claimed God as the father, and he taught his disciples to do the same thing. Our father, who art in heaven, okay? So Jesus not only referred to, to God as father, but it was even a bit more familiar than that. It wasn't just that he was the father of Israel, Right? It, the, 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 the word that Jesus uses, particularly when I think about him in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me, the word that he's using there is Abba. Have you ever heard the word Abba before, besides the awesome band from the 70s? Yeah. What does Abba mean, do you know? It's almost like saying Daddy, Papa. Papa, Daddy, let this cup pass from me, right? Now, but before we create a line between the Old and New Testaments, well, that was God in the Old Testament. This is the new, kinder, and gentler God in the New Testament. We'll take it one more passage from the New Testament that tells us, no, it's not that between the Testaments. It's that God the Father Almighty and God the, the Father. Inapproachable or and untouchable. And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. He's not just God the Father. He's God the Father Almighty. All right, this is in John 18, verse 1 and following. And just to set the stage a bit from what's happening here, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with the Father. Again, in Mark's Gospel, that's where it's, he is explicitly calls out the idea that he's the Father. Cut passed from me. But it wasn't to be. He would have to drink from the cup of suffering, and he's about to get arrested here in John 18, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. I love this. It's incredible. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a, a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a, brand, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus said to them, I am he. All right? When you read it the first time in, in the book of John, it seems pretty innocuous, right? I, I am he. You would think he's just saying, me, that's, that's him. Two phrases in the Greek that you can use I am. One is ego, and the other one is emu. For instance, emi. So, for instance, whenever Jesus would say one of his I am statements, like, I am the bread of life, or, or I am the door, he wouldn't say ego, the, the bread of life, or emi, the door. He would say ego, me, the bread of life, or ego, emi, the door. He would use both words. And the reason that's significant, the reason that's important, is that was like saying, don't miss this. I am that I am the bread of life. Remember that phrase? We just talked about it a moment ago. To say, I am that I am, that is how you would render the name of God in the Old in Greek. Like we were just when Moses asked God, when I go to the people, when I go to the people of the Lord, who, who should I say sent me? And what did God say? He said, tell them I am who I am. That's who sent you. So here in John 18, when Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And how does, how does Jesus reply? What does he say? The, the Bible translation is, I am he. But do you know what he's actually saying there? Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, ego, emi. He not only confesses that he's Jesus of Nazareth, but he utters his divine identity. Whenever someone tells you, did Jesus ever claim to be God in the New Testament? Point him to every single I am statement that, that you see in the Bible, because he's saying this. That's why oftentimes when he would say, I am the bread of life, or I am, they would pick up stones to throw at him. You know why? Because he was uttering the holy name of God as he, as he, uh, as he confessed that. He not only confesses that he's Jesus, but he utters his divine identity. And look, Verse 5 and following, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> he said he uttered the divine name, I am he, and they fell back. It literally blew them back off their feet. Okay, ego emi, he says. Okay, when my kids were younger, they would challenge me to an arm wrestle, right, which always cute because they would come to me and they would they would try believing they actually had a chance they still do i feel like i still got an edge on them but it's i'm on borrowed time right now but back then when they would come to me and we would wrestle around i would i would make them think that okay you, you may pin me but then all of a sudden what would i do <laughs> don't forget who your daddy is right <laughs> right here jesus is Let, let's not forget who he is here this is god incarnate this is this is God in the flesh. And here come these soldiers with their, their measly clubs and, and <coughs> excuse clubs and torches. We're looking for Jesus. And here, the fullness of God veiled in flesh. Yes, though he was veiled in flesh, every once in a while, every once in a while, he would pull back that veil. And what would happen? God Almighty would come through and blow them off their feet. Whom do you seek? Ego emi. Right? So do you, do you see what he did there? Who are you? The same God who answered Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. Tell him, I am sent you. That God, the very God who said, I answer to no one. I'm self-sufficient. I'm the self-existent creator and sustainer of everything that exists. The one who said, I answer to no one. Don't question me. I hold and sustain the universe on my fingertip. The unapproachable, the untouchable, here he is. 
And what does he do? What does he do? He turned himself over. He, he surrendered himself. He becomes the opposite of those things. The untouchable, approachable, I answer to no one. This is the paradox. This is the paradox. The God of the universe, God Almighty, makes himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Now, here's a question for you. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, also the Father, Abba Father, why does it have to be both? Why does it have to be both? That's a deep question. Anyone want to render a guess there? Why, why do we have to have both? Why do we have to have God the Father and God Almighty? Why do they have to be both? Oh, you're going to say something. You need both. <laughs> Did you have something else? You need justice. We want justice. But if we just had the justice, we're, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. He has to be both. Abba, the vulnerable and approachable father, and necessarily he has to be God Almighty. Look at this. This is Exodus 34, verse 6 and following. Listen, this, this is a summary of who God is. Here's God the Father. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let me stop right there in the middle of the verse. That's, that's God the Father, merciful, forgiving, slow to anger, steadfast in love and faithfulness. God the Father. But listen to how the verse finishes. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's God Almighty, okay? The God who will by no means clear the guilty, the God who will visit the iniquity, the sins of the fathers and their children's and their children's child, the third and fourth generation, it's both. God the Father Almighty. Why is it necessarily both, okay? Uh, I, I know I've told you about this, uh, uh, this uh, you know, story some time ago, and I just recently told it to the, the students, not, uh, not but a few weeks ago, but I'll, I'll keep it brief, brief. But there was a, a day where I got caught for speeding for the uh, second earth. This was many, years, many, many years ago. And uh, I, went, I went to the court uh, to, to face the judge, and uh, there in the, in the courtroom is the police officer who, you know, who gave the, the moving violations to everybody there in the courtroom. So we're all there because he gave us a ticket. And uh, just, to, again, this is a long, long time ago, so long ago. But I was on my last chance because, you know, you can go to, you know, traffic school for four hours and they'll move it, remove it. Then you can go to traffic school for eight hours and they'll, but after that, you know, if it's with, you know, good luck. I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go to jail now. And the judge said, today is Officer Wilson's birthday. And he's requested that because it's his birthday, all of your moving violations have been dismissed. Every last one of you. And there erupted a cheer in the courtroom. I went and I gave him a hug. Okay, do you think we had a favorable or unfavorable view of that judge? Favorable. Very favorable. Very, very favorable. We, we, we loved him. He was the best judge ever. Okay, now let's suppose the judge took the same attitude towards murder. Hey, 
it, it, it's the arresting officer's birthday and you requested that I let you all go, even though you've committed murder, you're free to go. In that case, would we have a favorable or unfavorable view of the judge? <laughs> if, if you're the murderer, right. <laughs> but everyone else, all of you would probably say what? That, that's not justice. That's not just. You see, if a judge lets someone with a moving violation go, he's merciful. If he lets a murderer go, he doesn't understand the gravity of what he's dealing with here. Okay? You see, when we talk about God and we talk about how good he is, we say he's good because he's forgiving. He's merciful. You know, we just read it. God is a God who's slow to anger, forgives iniquity and transgression. But if a judge forgives a murderer, we don't certainly call him a good judge. So, so how is it that God can be both, right? Here's the difference. If a judge lets a murderer go, what's he doing? He's looking at sin and saying, oh, let's just pretend it didn't happen. It's not a big deal. Let's just let the, the sin vanish and go away. Bye-bye sin, it's gone, poof, right? That's not what God does. That's not what God does. If God is, is really good, he would not fail to do justice. If he's a good God, he will not fail to do justice. So this is why God looks at sin and says, I'm not going to let sin go unpunished, not a single one, because I'm that just. And he says that because he is absolutely good. On the other hand, he also says, I will not fail to forgive you. I must forgive you. I don't, I don't want to see you perish. Why does he say that? Because he's good. Okay? These these aren't attributes of, of a God that's, that's contradictory. They are apparently contradictory. If he is absolutely and completely good, then he can't let a single sin go. He must save us. How can this be? Well, it's a paradox. Is it a paradox? It's absolutely counterintuitive. Common sense says he, he can't be all good. He's either, uh, he's either just or not really loving, or he's loving but not really just. Do you see that this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world? This right here. It makes what, this is what makes Christianity different than every single other religion out there. Okay? Every other religion gives you one of the Just? You get a God who's terrifying and unapproachable, and you'd better have your act together to please him. He's just but not loving. It can't be both, can it? Can it be both? Oh yes, there's a way for God to be absolutely holy and absolutely just. There's only one way that God can be just and forgiving. The only way, there's only one way for God to, do, to become God Almighty and God the Father, and that is if he offers up himself. If his justice is completely satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ. You see, when God forgives sin, it's not that sin just vanishes. It doesn't just go away. Do you realize that? When God forgives you, he's not just giving you a pass like, like I got from the judge that day. No, he still has to deal with your sin. The Lord deals with every last one of them. How does he deal with your sin? Where does it go? It goes on Jesus. Every last sin is paid for. For the wages of sin is death. That's God's requirement for sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And so he dealt with it. This is how God can be both God Almighty, unapproachable, and God the Father, the approachable, forgiving one that lets people like you and me go sit on his lap. He takes your sin and places it on the shoulders of Jesus. 
He takes the righteousness of Christ and places it over you as a robe. Justice and grace. Uh, To the detriment of neither one. Neither one. Both are upheld. God the just is satisfied and you are declared righteous. It's the most beautiful paradox imaginable. This is what makes God both the Father Almighty and God the Father. What a miracle. Any, any final thoughts or observations, questions, comments, anything like that? That's a lot to think about, isn't it? But again, it's absolutely, it's absolutely necessary that both, both exist together. And again, no other religion claims that. Show me one. Any thoughts, comments, observations, anything at all? No? It was so well done. Oh, so well done, yeah. Very comprehensive, right? Okay. Yes, sir. Here, you speak it. When he said, I am, I know that most people that read that, it's really what you're talking about, catch that. Mm-hmm. They knew when he said that, it was like he was saying, I am. Who, when Jesus said it? Right. Absolutely, yeah. Everybody understood that. Especially the religious leaders of the day, because, again, they were so familiar with the titles of God, you know, that, that, that's why there were instances when he said that, that phrase, that specific phrase, they picked up stones to, to, to throw at him. Because in their minds, he was committing blasphemy. What blasphemy? Claiming to be at least equal, if not God himself. And that's why he would often have to flee from the crowd. Because again, it was that, it was that uh, uh, disturbing to them in their minds. Absolutely. Yeah, without question. And that's why I say when everyone said, well, Jesus never explicitly said, even though there are instances where he says, you know, I and the Father are one. But again, every time he had phrases, he was claiming equality or union with God, you know, which is, again, that's, that's more than any prophet would, would ever say. Someone else? Yes, Millie. Just real quick, I hate to go down a rabbit hole, but when it says that the sins of the fathers are going to go to the sins of the children and the grandchildren and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But yet, sins are forgiven. So is that consequences of the sins that go No, those are not consequences. Those are, he punishes sin for the children, for the children's children, and the children's children. And, so, you know, and so what that should do is make you feel pretty uncomfortable. The sins that I, that I commit today will, will have impact. However, this is where grace comes in. My sins have to go punished. And, the, the, and, and again, those fall on Jesus. For any, anyone else, I, I don't know what to tell you. If you, don't, if you don't rely on God, if you don't rely on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that, that anxious feeling that you have when you think about the children and the children and the children's children, I don't know how you deal with that. So a Christian who believes that Jesus, which I do, absorbed mm-hmm. the world's sins, then does it still go? Does you're absolved, yes. Your, your sin is absolved. Uh, but again, yes, there is something also to, to talk about in terms of the consequence of sin, but you have to remember this. Okay, consequence of sin for the Christian is not judgment. You know, your judgment was paid in full at the cross. When the Lord said it is finished, it is finished. The payment for sin was complete, okay? Now, the consequence of sin that you might still have to live with, that even your children has to live with, now it has, takes on a different perspective altogether. Now it's sanctification, now it's, now it's for, for you to be made more and more like Christ. Even though it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around that sometimes because we think, how could, for instance, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm in jail, I'd be...
now it takes on a different Now I'm being made to be like Joseph in the Old Testament, who sat in prison for something that he didn't but sanctifying. Someone else? Yeah, the story of Job to me is so fascinating because I talk a bit about this with my, uh, the guys that I meet with on Thursdays, early morning. You all are welcome uh, on Thursday morning at 6.30 a.m. But I talk a little bit about Job. And, uh, and that starts off with, uh, you know, the Lord or the people coming to, to the Lord and say, you know, hey, and then the Lord says, have you considered, why, why is he even having a conversation with them? Why doesn't he just say, get out of here? Again, what, what that is, is he's, he's telling us about Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. A man who was given over to the devil to be tempted and, and who, was, who, was suffered, who suffered for righteousness sake. This is the story of Job, but it's also the story of Jesus. So again, the oldest book in the Bible is telling us about Jesus Way, 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 way before Jesus. And again, it only makes sense in the light of the cross. It only makes sense in the of the gospel. Otherwise, the book doesn't make any sense to me at all. His friends turned on him. He must have done something. Again, same thing. Jesus' friends, they turned on him too. Because he must have done something, right? It, it's, it's amazing. And it, the, the thing that we kept coming back to in this, this uh, group is, like, who could do this? Who could put together a book like this and have it tight together, tied together like the way it does, old to new. It's impossible. No, no mere mortal could have thought of this and made it make sense. That's what's astounding to me about the scriptures. Someone else? Thoughts? Comments? Question? Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that was before he had died on the cross. Right. So were his, were, was that man's sins forgiven without Jesus' Excellent question. How old are you? <laughs> 17. Excellent question. Thank you for joining us today, by the way. I really appreciate you being here. Okay, did everyone hear the question? Specific, specific, uh, tell me your, your first name again. Clara Beth. Clara Beth. She asked us about uh, specifically the paralytic when she said that your sins are forgiven. And, and, well, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. Right? So were her sins, or was his sins forgiven by the cross too? Yes, some of you shaking your head, yes. Some of you have a question mark above it that I can see, right? <laughs> Jesus said it, he said it. Oh, do you have a... There you go. The death of, the, death of Jesus on the cross goes forward and backwards. Now, here, here's a concept that if you've never thought about this, okay? Now, think of this as, as, a, as a moment in time. This is the cross. When we look at the cross, you know, we that live on this side of, of history, we can look back to what happened on the cross and say, Jesus forgave my sins. By faith, I'm looking back at Jesus and what he did on the cross, and by that faith, I am forgiven, okay? What about people on this side of history? What did they do? The same thing. 
they looked ahead and anticipated the fact that one day, because every sacrifice that the Old Testament showed us pointed forward, pointed forward and said, one day, somehow, some way, someone from up there will come down here and make things right. And they anticipated their sins being forgiven on the cross. And again, it goes forward and backwards. Now, the people that lived on this side of the cross, they didn't have as clear of a picture as the people that lived on this side of the cross. We can look at our Bible now, we can read it, and we can see that, ah, here's how sin is paid for. This is uh, an illustration that David Filson has used before. When you have a rose, and you see how lovely the rose is, you see its colors and its beauty and and, and and all that. Uh, When you have a rose bud, tightly closed up, you don't see the colors of of, of its beauty and, and all those things, but it's still a rose. It's still a rose. You don't see all the detail yet, which is what the people on this side of the cross live with. I, I don't see all the clarity yet. I don't see the full picture, but repetitive all throughout the Old Testament is going as far back as, as, uh, as well, Genesis chapter 3 that told us a story that one day somehow a seed would come forth and crush the head of the serpent, or that one day that the Lord himself would provide the sacrifice with with, uh, with uh, Abraham and his son Isaac. There were hints, there were whispers, there were a tightly closed rosebud that told us the story of the gospel, that they anticipated that one day Jesus would forgive my sins with his act on the cross. Works on both sides of history. By faith, same way. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus was in that moment saying, I am. Yeah, because they, they even asked him, by what authority can you forgive sins? By the authority of God. Yeah, beautiful. All right, I want to, uh, if you have any other questions, excellent question, by the way, thank you. Uh, please, I'm happy to talk, you, uh, talk through them, uh, whether it's this setting or, or otherwise. So uh, thank you for participating. Uh, let's close in prayer, and then uh, we'll be discussing. Father, again, we thank you for the miracle that is the fact that this crazy paradox that you are God, you are just, you are the beginning and the end, you answer to no one, yet somehow, some way, through Jesus Christ, you've made it so that we can approach you and, and literally go in, in places that was, we once thought was, was unthinkable, but you've, you've drawn us in. And we can call you Abba, Father. We're loved and, uh, and we're forgiven. Thank you for that, Father. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Go in God's peace.